had word from a confidential source that this cop killer was coming to this area of Virginia. I mean, you could have had a shootout right there in public. The defense attorney was screaming blue bloody murder. The judge declared a mistrial. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to Best Case, Worst Case. This is your host, Jim Clementi, with my co-host, Francie Hakes. Hi, Jim. How are you? Good. What's great is that I'm talking to you from my home studio in Los Angeles, California, and you're talking to us from your home, aren't you? That's right. I'm here in Atlanta. That's great. Well, you sound fantastic and sound happy to be home. It is nice to be home occasionally, yes. And today we have a very special guest, retired FBI agent Jerry Williams. How you doing, Jerry? Hi, Jim. Hi, Francie. Hi, Jerry. So, Jerry, want to tell us, first of all, what the name of your podcast is? Absolutely. I have a podcast that's been going strong for uh, almost uh, a year and a half, and it's called FBI Retired case file review yes and i was lucky enough to be one of your interviewees on that that was great we i really had a great experience thank you for doing that thank you it's an opportunity for me to get retired agents on to talk about some of their high profile cases and their careers and give uh my listeners an idea of what it really is like to be a special agent that's great well thank you so much for for doing that public service so today we're here to talk about your best case and your worst case. And But first, before we start, can you just tell our listeners about where you worked, how long you worked, what kind of cases you worked over your FBI career? Absolutely. So I was a special agent with the FBI for 26 years. And the majority of my career, I worked white-collar cases. Uh, advanced fee schemes, Ponzi schemes, uh, business-to-business telemarketing fraud. And, uh, you know, I had a fabulous time. I had some really great cases. I was lucky enough in the last five years of my career to be appointed as the spokesperson for the Philadelphia office. And uh, in that capacity, I dealt with the media and the public in trying to promote a positive image for the FBI. Well, that's great. And I think that might be where you develop this amazing speaking voice as well. <laughs> uh, I think so. That's great. Well, can you tell us um, what case that you have decided to talk to us today about in terms of the worst case? What type of case was the worst case? Well, actually, you know, it was a very serious case. It was a, a fugitive case. 
the fugitive had killed a police officer in New England. And uh, it was one of the first cases that I worked on. It was not my case. I was a brand new agent. I spent a very short time, six months in the Norfolk, Virginia office. I'm from the, the uh, Tidewater area. And this was a case where state troopers from New England, I don't remember the, the state, uh, came down to the Tidewater area in Norfolk because they had word that this cop killer was going to be coming down to visit his daughter. Okay. Jerry, this is uh, such an interesting and topical subject, I think, just because of over the last couple of years, it seems like there's been a, an awful lot of uh, cop killing sort of cases. So I'm really eager to hear about this one. Yeah, and this one has been a hard one for, for me. I, you know, I, I don't talk about it often, and you'll see why. Um, because, you know, it was one of the first things that I did when I was in the Norfolk office, and it did not go very well. Didn't go well at all. And I've always been embarrassed to talk about it. So when, you know, Jim invited me to be on the show and he talked about the worst case, I thought about this and I said, you know, I'm ready to talk about it in public. So, well, thank you. Uh, yeah. So we appreciate it. And, and actually, Jerry, this is a perfect example of why we're actually doing this podcast, because we want to show our listeners the spectrum of cases that we work and how it affects the people that do this for a profession. I mean, because we are human beings and we do care deeply about our jobs and our professions and about p protecting the public. And in the course of doing that, sometimes we can be very damaged by it. Well, in this particular case, you know, again, we had state troopers from one of the New England states come down. They had word from a confidential source that this cop killer was coming to this area of Virginia. I don't know if it was Suffolk or Portsmouth, but down in this area of, of Virginia to visit his daughter. And so a surveillance uh, was blanketed around the area. Now, I can tell you that, you know, I take fault in, in what happened, but I should never have been, as a brand new agent, in a surveillance vehicle by myself in an area that I did not know. Yeah. Now, this was back in 1983 when they didn't have GPSs. Yeah. You know, so, uh, you know, you could pull out a big, map, you know, lay it across your front seat of your car to try to figure out where you are. But, um, you know, as you'll hear, I, I didn't have that opportunity. Right. And so basically we were all assigned in different areas uh, to be able to respond if somebody saw this cop killer. Jerry, can I ask you to just back up quickly? Mm -hmm. I'm, this is, I'm intrigued already, but I'm curious as to the facts of the underlying case to the extent you know them. What what was this cop killer? Obviously, he killed a cop. But do you know the circumstance? Did you know the at the time? Did you know the circumstances of that? At the time, I did. But this is over thirty years ago, and I don't remember. Again, I don't even remember. You know what state it was, but he had shot and killed a state trooper. And right, and of course, and, when that happens, law enforcement always um, mobilizes very seriously because obviously it's one of their own. Right, and this guy was a fugitive, so they knew who knew who he was, um, but they didn't know where he was. And he had been 
you know, a fugitive for a number of years. Yeah. But here they had concrete information that he was supposed to be in this area. Now, yeah. I don't really know, you know, how much, you know, they really believed he was in the area, but everyone was willing to do what they could to order uh, in order to try to identify him and, and, of course, to capture him. All right. And so, Jerry, Jerry, is mm -hmm. we typically try to do two things on on this podcast, and that is not um, not mention the names of the offenders unless that person is still a risk to the community. We don't want to give them any more notoriety than they've already attained. And the, we just don't like the way media makes them to be the stars of a case. And we do like to give the victims names only if that is, you know, in memorial of them, you know. And so if if you want to not mention the offender's name and if you have it or choose to and you want to mention the state trooper victim's name, that would be great. Well, you'll see why I don't remember any of those. Okay. Uh, I don't remember, unfortunately, the state trooper who lost his life, and I don't remember the name of the of the, of the fugitive. It was some. This is something we that I kind of his put name. <laughs> out of my mind for a while. But I think there's a, a purpose in me talking about it today. Got it. So I don't want to build it up too much. Let me just you know say again that you know we had a you know, big meeting, a pre-planning meeting that, you know, who was going to be involved in this surveillance and where everybody was going to be placed. And I was assigned again to a vehicle by myself. I was at the time 25 years old. I, I had just joined the Bureau. I was one of the youngest uh, agents uh, in, in my class and mm -hmm. definitely in the Norfolk, Virginia office. But, um, you know, I was gung-ho yeah. and I was ready to go. And, you know, I did not speak up when I was placed in a, a you know, car by myself. Um, so, you know, we spent hours, you know, just being ready, you know, if anybody spotted him for us to be able to respond and nothing happened. Nobody spotted him. You know, they were doing a, a closer surveillance outside the home where his young daughter lived and nothing happened. And so at one point, as it always happens in a surveillance, I have to go to the bathroom. Yeah. And I go into, you know, I pull into a a uh, a little shopping center and there's a a pizza place and I'm kind of hungry too. So I think well, I'm going to go in, I'm going to use the bathroom and I'm going to order a, a slice of pizza. And when I walk in the door, sitting on a stool at the counter, I swear is the guy. Wow. Oh, Jerry. Now, Wow. Yes. Now, I'm sure it's the guy because he's an older man. I mean, he's probably, and I say that now, but <laughs> an older man, but he's probably <laughs> in his 60s. And the most interesting thing about him is that he used a cane. And here's this guy that looks like the person that we're supposed to be, you know, hunting. And there's a cane laying against his leg. Mm. So Jerry, you're a brand new agent. You're 25 years old. You're all by yourself. What went through your mind when you walked in to, to take a bathroom break and you think you spot the fugitive? What are you thinking to yourself? I think I'm trying to convince myself that it couldn't be him. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how 
it just couldn't be him. And so I do order the slice of pizza. And I basically order the pizza so that I have an excuse to use the bathroom because, you know, most of the time they don't want you to use the bathroom right. if you're not, um, you know, purchasing something customer. from the, right. uh, you know, from the, uh, the business. So I order a slice and I walk back into the bathroom. And you got to remember, there were no cell phones in 1983. Mm-hmm. You know, I did not bring my, you know, handheld uh, radio in with me. I was just going to go in real quick. I, you know, I told him I was going 10-7 and I, you know, I went in real quick. And um, if you had bought your, if you had bought your radio in, that could have created actually no, a problem, absolutely. right? Absolutely. And you'll, and you'll hear okay. something that did create an issue. So I go to the bathroom and I think to myself, okay, I want you to take, you know, take a good breath. And when you come out, take a real good look at this guy. And so I come out and I'm basically standing right next to him because he's sitting at the counter and I'm, you know, going going to pay for my pizza. And when the guy behind the counter gives me my change, I drop it. And I bend down. Oh, no. And as you all know, I have my gun. It was a revolver at the time. And when I bent down, you know what happened. Oh, Jerry, he saw it. The butt of my gun now was poking out the side of my jacket. Now, we make eye contact. And I can see, you know, this is the guy. So, you know, anybody else, at least I'd like to to say anybody else, you know, on on TV, let me put it that way, on TV and in the movies, you know, the guy would draw his gun and place him under arrest. But I'm still thinking to myself, this can't be the guy. You know, how of all of these people, maybe 50 agents and state troopers and, and police officers that are looking for this guy, how could this be the guy? And again, you know, I'm naive, I'm young, I've been out of the academy for a month or two, and I second guess myself again. Yeah. I decide to go to the car, get on the radio, and let everybody know what's going on. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still thinking in my mind, maybe he doesn't know for sure. Yeah, he may know that he sees a gun, you know, the, the butt of the gun out of my jacket, but he has no idea if I know, you know, that I'm looking for him. Right. So I get the pizza, I go back to the car. I key in the radio, and all of a sudden, I see him coming out of the pizza shop. Wow. So now I'm turning on the car because I don't know what he's going to do. I, you know, call for for backup. I let him know that I believe that I have somebody who fits the description of the fugitive. And, you know, I tell them where I am. And as I'm doing that, this guy gets in his car, he turns out of the parking lot, and he starts speeding at least 100 miles an hour. There wow. is no doubt in my mind at this point that it's the guy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, of course not. Yeah, he's... So I get behind him, and I start chasing, but it gets to a point, Jim, and this is the real embarrassing part for me. I had no idea where the hell I was. That's okay. Uh, you know, I couldn't give any direction to anybody trying to find me, trying to find him, and I lose him. 
Oh, Jerry, don't be embarrassed. I would be absolutely lost without Google Maps. Yeah, and But I can tell you this, as a brand new agent with 25 years, it was devastating. Yeah, but listen, Jerry, I remember my first car chase, and it was in Queens in New York City, and I'm chasing these bank burglars. I happened, we were on a surveillance for two weeks, and this was the last night of surveillance, and I wasn't even on duty, but since I had been up all night, for the last four nights, I couldn't go to sleep. I heard the guys out there. One of my best friends, Jim Fitzgerald, was on duty that night. So I just got in my car and drove out there just because I couldn't sleep. And five minutes after I got there, these guys hit the bank. I was the only one who could get past this garbage truck and actually chase them, and I did. And I'm yelling out. I- I'm in a rental car, and I'm, I got one hand on my handheld, one hand on the steering wheel. I'm yelling out directions, 23rd Avenue, 56th Drive, 92nd Place. Nobody knows where the hell I am because Queens has streets like that all over the place. And and I eventually, they were driving so fast and so recklessly, and they cut off this, I remember very clearly, this red Jeep Wrangler. They cut off this person, and the person went up on the sidewalk, and I said, look, this is way too dangerous. It's going to get somebody killed, and I just didn't want to have some innocent person killed in a car accident. Welcome to your next true crime obsession. Don't miss new BritBox original drama, The Sixth Commandment, which The Guardian calls as immaculate a piece of TV as you will ever see. You will hear evidence of extreme gaslighting. Help me, please. I am going to be waiting on you, hand and foot. Stream this plus the best selection of British true crime series anywhere, only on BritBox. Once you start investigating, you won't be able to turn away. Start streaming today with a free trial at BritBox.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. And it wasn't until years later we finally tracked them down, and I actually got to interview the guy who was driving. And when he found out I was the one behind him, he was like, he couldn't believe it. But anyway, we did eventually catch him. But what happened next? I understand your frustration and your feelings, but you know, it's just a terribly difficult situation. I think the embarrassing part of what happened next is that everyone tried to convince me that it wasn't the guy, oh. you know, that I was, you know, mistaken. And, you know, they wanted to minimize it because, you know, that way, the you know, the FBI hadn't made a mistake. And so I was never really able to, you know, have a cathartic release right. of my um, disappointment and, and, you know, how it all turned out. I mean, thank God, you know, that Silence of the Lambs wasn't out until eight or nine years later, because if I had to, you know, rate myself against, you know, brand new agent 
you know, Clarice Sterling and her capturing, you know, the serial killer and, and my bungling the cop killer, I think I might have quit on the spot. But it, it I, I don't want to dramatize this more, uh, you know, than I need to. But, you know, it, it did take me several years to build my confidence up because I just kept second guessing myself that maybe I should have just, you know, tried to arrest him right there on the spot and in, uh, in the pizza shop. Well, A, there were probably, there were certainly workers in the shop and, and B, there could have been customers in the shop and that would have put them at risk. And if he is, I mean, he's a, he's a wanted cop killer. This person certainly isn't just going to respect you because you say you're FBI and he's under arrest. I mean, you could have had a shootout right there in public. And I think in the end, you it, what you did may have saved lives. And you wanted to make sure, you wanted to be certain that this person was who you thought he was before you acted you know, in such a way that could have put other people at risk. You certainly had no way to know that you could absolutely control him. And lacking that, I think you would have put the public at risk. What do you think, Francie? Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I have actually a uh, sort of a related question, Jerry. Did you ever find out whether or not 100% that was the guy? I mean, you, you know, you obviously suspect that it was. You believe that you recognized him. He fled when he saw you. But as we all know, lots of people flee when they see law enforcement. So was it actually him? Did you ever find out? Was he ever captured? I never found out. But I can tell you with 100% confidence that the way he left that shop and the way he got in that car and sped off, there's no doubt in my mind it was him. Yeah, I I tend to agree with you because behaviorally, this guy took a tremendous risk. Think about it. Yes, people may want to avoid cops in general, but if he knew you were a cop and he sped off at 100 miles an hour when he knew you were a cop, then he's risking being arrested just for that. So it wasn't just somebody who didn't want to be around cops. And I, I just, you know, I think coincidences happen. You run into people at the at the craziest time. Um, and I think that that's what happened. It was a coincidence. And had you not run into him like that, I nobody on the surveillance might have ever seen him. They would have just thought, oh, that intelligence was bad. When in fact, it sounds like, and I'm totally behind you on this, that it sounds like the intelligence was right on and you just happened to be the one who was lucky enough or unlucky enough to walk in on this guy having pizza. Yeah. So I never thought that this would be a therapy session, but <laughs> you're making me feel a lot better about the situation. But two things I, uh, you know, I wanted to to bring up, and the reason I chose to to, you know, talked about this story, talk about this story is, you know, when you are a new law enforcement officer, whether it's a police officer, state trooper, FBI agent, you know, you're a training agent, and people pulling for you and helping you learn is so important. And, you know, I, I don't know how, as a brand new agent with less than two or three months in, I ended up in a surveillance car on a surveillance in a rural, 
backwoods area where I had never been before in my life. But I think that's one of the main lessons that I learned from this. And, you know, as I gained experience and I became a veteran agent, I made sure that I took every new agent under my wing, made sure they knew what they were doing, made sure I knew what I was doing. And even though this was a a, a situation that you know, had a, an effect on me for, for most of my career, most of it was good. I mean, it's really what, you know, put a, a fire under under me to make sure that, you know, I had my act together at, at, at all times. Well, I think, Jerry, one of the things Jim says all the time is that we, and it's true as, as a former prosecutor as well as former agents, we learn far more from the mistakes we made and the cases that don't necessarily go our way than we do from the supposed mythical perfect case. And I would just also note that it seems to me that it's a bit of a failure on the supervisor's part to put a brand new agent in the situation you were in without knowing the area, without knowing where you were and you know being by yourself. So I agree, I echo what Jim already said. I certainly wouldn't, if I were you, I don't think you have any reason to beat yourself up um, yeah. about what happened at all. And I think you did. You were able to confirm, like Jim said, the intelligence that put this cop killer in the area. So I'm, I'm really eager to know, did he ever get caught? Do you know? I don't know. I don't know. I was only in the Norfolk division for six months. Uh, it was a program they had at the time. And then I went off to lovely Sacramento, California, to the Sacramento division and uh, just never really got any you know, feedback about what happened. Well, but I hope they did. I hope they caught him. Yeah. Well, Jerry, I also remember a very a devastating case from the Washington field office when I was there where they had agents on the periphery of, of a, uh, of a stakeout. And, uh, they thought the guy, they were looking for a guy who was armed and dangerous. And it was, an agent on the very periphery who was sitting in his car, um, you know, expecting somebody to drive by at some point, maybe, but really he felt like, I mean, he was in the outer perimeter, you know, they had concentric circles around where this guy was supposed to be. And he was the outermost perimeter. And the bad guy crawled up beside his car and popped up and killed the agent. And, and, we had all those agents and, you know, SWAT teams and everybody, all the tactical teams closer in. But this guy, for whatever reason, was able to just sneak up on this one agent. And, you know, so it's just really hard to predict what will what an offender would do, especially a violent offender like that who's also already proven that they're willing and able to kill a law enforcement officer. So the person that you were dealing with was extremely dangerous, and the fact that you survived the situation and no innocent civilians were killed in the situation is probably a testament to the fact that you and your instincts, however you know honed or not honed they were, they were enough to get you to a safe place to call in for backup, which is exactly what you should have done, and, you know, shame on them for not 
having a situ having a, a, a situational awareness that they might need to be you know on the road looking for this guy. Um, if and if somebody spots them, they need to put out a dragnet. They knew where you were f- heading from. They knew the starting point, and they should have built concentric circles around that. Uh, you know, based on the fact that this guy's going 100 miles an hour, how far can he get from there? Where would he be now? Where would he be in one hour? Where would he be in two hours? That's what they should have done. And if they didn't do that, that's not that's not your fault. I mean, you weren't making the operation plan, and you were simply a cog in this machine. That's so true, Jim. And Jerry, the other thing that's interesting, I think, about what you say and learning from experiences and being a rookie agent my very first trial, I had a similar experience, not with a fugitive, but as a baby prosecutor, um, the judge had made a ruling saying that I wasn't allowed to bring certain evidence in because the defense attorney lied to the court about whether he got proper uh, notice of it. And I had the detective on the witness stand. It was a child expo- a child molestation case. And the detective then goes to play the audio tape of the interview of the 10-year-old little girl. And I had been in the DA's office for less than three weeks when I was sitting in this trial for the first time, my very first trial. And I had not had sufficient time to prepare. I completely forgot that on that tape, the child mentions the evidence that just 10, 15, 20 minutes before the judge had said we could not bring before the jury. And so the second it hit the tape, the second it hit the speakers, I closed my eyes because I knew what was going to happen. And the defense attorney was screaming blue bloody murder. The judge declared a mistrial. And this little nine-year-old girl is staring at me like, what is happening? I thought I was going to get fired. I thought I'd never be able to bring the case back because this the, it was all ruined. I mean, I felt like an absolute abject failure. Nothing prepared me for that. So we've all been there, and I learned a lot from that, I can assure you, like like I'm, I know you did. Absolutely. I guess we all have one of those cases, and, and that's why you're doing this show. We all yeah. have a case that uh, <laughs> we have uh, regrets and wish that we could have a do-over. Right. And I just want to say one final thing about this. You mentioned Clarice Starling, and um, I have to say that although I did really enjoy that that film and the book that it was based on, uh, Silence of the Lambs, I have to say that I also know the guys who were working and who had advised on the film, who were working in the Behavioral Science Unit at the time, had advised on the film, and they were all extremely disappointed with the depictions and and how how ridiculous the scenario they set up that in which a you know fledgling FBI agent would come in and and know profiling better than the actual guys who had years of experience doing this decades of experience doing this and to make her the hero was simply a mechanism of that film and that book it was certainly not anything like reality and the reality is that in that situation had she been actually put in that same situation, she most likely would have been dead. And thank God you didn't make that mistake. Thank God that you survived the situation and you were able to have a long and healthy and productive career. And you were able to help so many new agents 
because you went through this experience so they could avoid such an experience. So bravo to you, Jerry. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you so much, Francie and Jerry, for being here on Best Case, Worst Case. And for now, we're signing off till next time. Thank you for listening. Knowledge is power. And when we know the facts about sexual abuse, we can better protect kids. Darkness to Light has already trained more than 1.4 million adults to keep children safe from sexual abuse. I'm one of those 1.4 million, Jim. Using their Stewards of Children Prevention Training, they give you and gave me the facts, tools, and tips I needed to help keep the kids I love safe. And you can do the same with their Stewards of Children Prevention Training. Get trained today to prevent recognize and react responsibly to child abuse in your community. Learn more about Darkness to Light and child sexual abuse prevention at www.d2l.org. That's D, the numeral two, L, dot org. Best Case, Worst Case is an XG production. Produced by Jim Clementi at Empire Studios, LA. Engineered and edited by Terrell Parham. Music by Simba Sumba. Hosted by Wondery. You can subscribe to Best Case Worst Case on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, or your favorite listening app. Jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig, inspiring kid confidence.